And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Michael Bennett when he was a star school superintendent in Denver, uh, having taken that school system forward in many, many ways, and a candidate for Secretary of Education in 2008. He didn't get that job, but ended up in the United States Senate uh, instead, where he's one of the most thoughtful members, uh, a real voice for uh, reason, for compromise, for uh, valuing our institutions and handing them to future generations. He came by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we sat down to talk about where we are as a country in the era of Trump. Michael Bennett, it's always good to be with you. Uh, you know, one of the one of the great uh, joys of doing these conversations is you learn stuff about people you thought you knew uh, and never really did. And part of what I learned about you was just how exotic your family mix is uh, and and your early experiences. Um, but uh, y- you, on the one hand, you're a descendant way back to the Mayflower, and on the other hand, you're the descendant of uh, uh, folks who escaped the Warsaw Ghetto. Tell, tell me about your the, your family. My check your, your, Yes. Uh, my brother James, who's a journalist, remembers yes. that when I was in the second grade, we were asked to line up in order of how long our family had been in the United States, and that I was the answer, or, or how short, and I was the answer to both questions. Because <laughs> my mom and her parents had uh, left, they miraculously survived the war in uh, Warsaw. They were Polish Jews who the whole family was killed except for the three of them and an aunt. Um, and after the war was over, they, they stayed because my grandfather didn't want to leave his family. He ended up losing his whole family. Um, and they stayed for a couple of years, and then they went to Stockholm for a year, uh, and then they went to Mexico City for a year, and they finally came to the United States, to New York City, where they were able to rebuild their shattered lives. And my grandparents always believed that... Um, uh, the only country in the world where they could have done that was this country. It, what 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 uh, what scars did uh, your mother bear as a result of that experience? Um, enormous ones, and um, it's given me a very strong sense that no matter who you are, no matter how lucky you are, and I've been enormously lucky in my life that um, that there is no way for you to escape history. You can't escape history. And um, and therefore, you, you have to try to make a contribution. And one of the things I've said in this era, in this moment, in our polit- politics all over Colorado, I say I've been to every single inch of the state, and I have yet to meet a person that has a stronger accent than my grandparents had. <laughs> and I know of no people who are greater patriots than them. So, and I think it's important to remind people of that, given the rhetoric we're hearing out of the White House these days. Yeah, I mean, this is a, obviously a current topic because we've been uh, a place where refugees from all over the world would come, and that's not the policy of the government today. 
and it's not consistent with who we are, with, with, our, with our history. You know, this country is a nation of immigrants, and we have been a beacon of hope for people all over the world and a place that people that are striving want to come to make a difference because they know we're committed to the rule of law, which many places on, the, on this planet are not. I've recently been in Ghana, the Gambia, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico. These are places that don't share our commitment to the rule of law, or they, to different degrees maybe they do. And when you're in those places, you realize that we have something here that is unique, something here that needs to be cherished and protected, uh, and it's under assault right now. By the way, just to finish the story, my yes. other side of the family yes. was my dad's side of the family, and, and uh, they were uh, from Connecticut, and he was a... Uh, his dad was a worked for the a guy who was the governor of Connecticut. He was a guy named Chester Bowles, yeah. who later worked for Roosevelt. And uh, and anyway, long story Very short, prom- prominent in our history. Yeah, and my dad ended up going to India to work for Bowles when he was our ambassador to India. Uh, in that moment in our history, when um, we were competing with the Soviets and uh, the United States was trying to. Um, uh, share our knowledge and our values around the world. And that's why he was in India, and my mom was in India with him, and that's why I was born there, which has been nothing but a political liability to me, <laughs> except for the trip I took to India. where people Now, does that uh, exclude you as a, a potential presidential candidate? I'm sure there are things that do, but that's not the thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you your your father was also uh dabbled in politics yeah. when you moved back to Connecticut yeah. not not as successfully as you well actually it's interesting i was uh my dad ran one politi- he ran for Connecticut, uh, congress in Connecticut and he was beaten by chris dodd in a caucus process there and one of the first people that called me when i was appointed to the senate and i was in o'hare airport in chicago i remember my phone rang and the guy said, this is Chris Dodd. And I said, Mr. Chairman. And he said, I'm so glad you're coming. Your father should have been here. And I said to him, and this is true, I said to him, my dad always said that uh, Chris had done him a huge favor by beating him because he, he was out of politics. You, uh, but you, were in, you, you grew up at, uh, during, during a period uh, in Washington as well when your father was uh, working there. Yeah, we... Uh, my dad worked on Capitol Hill for many years. He was a, 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 what is now called a chief of staff, what then was called an administrative assistant to several senators. We moved there uh, because he was writing speeches for Hubert Humphrey. That's how we got to Washington to begin with. And then uh, he ended up, uh, his last job on the Hill was working for Ed Muskie when he was the chair of the Budget Committee. And you were a page in the Senate. I was, yeah. What, what, that, was the, that was a pretty ripe uh, uh, era in our history yeah. it was during the Vietnam War, was it? it was not? Slightly after that, and so who were the sort of the the giant figures who were? Well, in there story? were a lot. So, I mean, the guy that I was lucky enough to p- p- be a page for was Tom Eagleton, who had mm. been uh, briefly McGovern's uh, vice presidential. Yeah, candidate. was forced out because of revelations that he'd been treated for depression. Exactly, and uh, but um, there were. People like Ed Muskie, there were people like Scoop Jackson, there were a number of people there, Ted Kennedy, um, a number of people there that um, that really were very significant public figures. I'm interested figures. in, as a, as a teenager, 
how you viewed that institution. And now that you're a member of it, I know that Groucho Marx said I, I'd never join a club that would have me as a member, but you're a member of the club now. Uh, but back then, did you did you have a, a, a different view of the Senate than you do now? Um, yes. Um, back then, it was, I sort of, there was a, a reverence for it. And I think the public had a reverence for it. And I had a, um, a fairly positive view of it because my dad worked there. And, I mean, that, that, that's what he did for a living. Um, and he established, my grandparents, I think, gave us a sense that America was, was a very special place and your duty to, to participate was something that was incredibly important. My dad gave us the sense that, public service was something that was noble. And those were two different ideas, but I think those are the ideas that I've tried to um, live out, I think, in my life. And you ask, what do I think now? Um, Sometimes people ask me, Michael, uh, have you watched Kevin Spacey's program, House of Cards, and is it (laughs) like House of Cards? And my answer is, I actually find the program more believable having been in the Senate (laughs) than if I had never been in the Senate. And... And why? Because this, the because um, uh, uh, there is a level of sociopathic behavior that we would not accept in any other institution or business. I used to be a business person or school district. I used to be a superintendent of the Denver Public Schools that we have accepted in the Senate. And I think we are at risk of um, destroying an institution that um, the founders very delicately built for us and that other generations of Americans have preserved. Uh, And that, of course, has become far more likely in the wake of President Trump's election. So there's a lot lot for us to do now, I think, um, is a positive way of thinking about this. I I don't want to lose the thread of your story, and we'll we'll come back to it. But since we're there, uh, you and I have chatted about the state of our institutions and the threats to our institutions. You, you describe the Senate as a sociopathic place or where socio, sociopathic behavior is accepted. I think most people would say, okay, I, I, I buy that. But isn't that part of the problem that there is this pervasive sense that our institutions aren't working, that people are fundamentally self-interested, that money is so pervasive that you know, that members of Congress are essentially uh, rented out to special interests. Um, Isn't that part of what propelled Donald Trump uh, to the presidency? Absolutely. And I don't, I I would never, I would never have suggested or recommended or even imagined that Donald Trump would be the remedy to the problem. But I understand it. And, And I think it's a consequence of Washington decoupling from the rest of the country and pursuing a set of priorities that are not consistent with America's priorities. So that's one set of problems. The other issue is that when the when the founders were meeting in Philadelphia and and they it's important to understand them I think not as movie stars or as mythic figures. They were politicians that were from different places that mm-hmm. it, that had huge personal differences and policy differences. And they were trying to create the largest experiment in self-governance that had ever existed in human human history. It's really true. And 
in order to do that, what they did was look out on their colonies and said, we're going to have lots of disagreements. Because unlike an autocracy where one person gets to decide, we're going to have a bunch of disagreements. So we have to figure out a mechanism to resolve those disagreements. And they had an outside aspect to that, which was voting and, and, and people having freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. And there was an inside version of that, which was separation of powers, the, the independence of the judiciary, um, also freedom of the press. And when Ben, I'll stop here, when Ben Franklin was asked once, he was standing on the steps of, the, of Independence Hall, somebody yelled at him and said, what kind of government are you creating, a, a monarchy or a republic? His answer was, a republic if you can keep it. He didn't say a republic. He said a republic if you can keep it because he knew it, what were, they were writing on the page of the Constitution was not necessarily the important thing. The question was whether generations of Americans coming after would attend to their responsibility to keep the republic. And so far we've done that, which is why if a founder dropped in here today and found us sitting here, they would say, my God, you've lasted 230 years. We never thought that would happen. You're coast to coast. You're, they said we couldn't do this over the, over the geography of the 13 colonies, that that would be too big, that you had to be a tiny city. We're coast to coast, most dynamic economy humankind has ever known, the most biggest capacity for self-defense humankind has ever known. Uh, and we're at jeopardy of being the generation that messes that up. I hope we won't. I think we won't. But that's what's at stake. First principles are what is at stake, right? The uh, the premise uh, that you speak of um, that the founders were grappling with was how you uh, arrive at compromise on your differences as you unite around uh, kind of universal principles. But compromise... Is has become almost a dirty word in in the in our parlance today. I in our politics today, we, uh, as we were talking uh, uh, before we began this conversation, um, I uh, it, it struck me something you said struck me. Uh, we talked today uh, about the swamp. The president talks about draining the swamp. Well, Washington is kind of a swamp, and Washington is located where Washington is as a result of a grand compromise uh, over where the location of the capital would be, and trades were made uh, around that issue. Famously, uh, this country is founded on the principle of compromise, but I'm sure you've been attacked uh, for being someone who in the Senate is known as a person who is seeking compromise. Uh, that seems like a very, uh, a very pernicious development in our politics, well, this you absolutism. Can't, it can't work. It won't work. I mean, if you want to have a republic that is self-governed, uh, you can't get your way all the time. And even when somebody is just wrong, sometimes you need to find a way through to get a result. Which doesn't mean you should compromise your principles. But even Jefferson said, not every opinion you have is a principle. You listen to people talk on the cable television at night or on the floor of the Senate, claiming that they're standing up for some extraordinary principle that looks nothing like the principles that people have fought for, you know, in our democracy over many years to make it fairer than it was. You know, the founders left a lot of work undone. Some of it they knew they were leaving undone. 
Every generation of Americans has worked together, even with their disagreements, to make that republic more democratic and more democratic, to extend the vote, to extend the franchise, to free people from slavery, to create civil rights. And now in our time, there are urgent needs in our economy with respect to our climate, with respect to immigration, with respect to our role in the world. And none of that, I would say, is being addressed effectively in the Senate right now. And it's right. You're right. I mean, the 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 place, there is a corruption there that was enhanced by the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, which was, I used oh, to... Which- Broaden the ability for corporations and others to yeah. play with unlimited amounts of money and, in our politics. And I think was a real attack on the fundamental tenet of pluralism in our society. You know, that, that's one of the things that makes us so unique is that we are a pluralistic society. We believe people with different views in the public square should be able to make those views heard. When you've got billionaires writing checks for uh, – politicians, it distorts that in a very material way. And what I think some people don't understand well, and I just want to mention this and I'll stop, is that the Supreme Court thought it was, you know, was thinking about uh, corruption in the context of what it described as quid pro quo corruption. David Axelrod gives me $5,000 and I go write a bill for David Axelrod. That's not what we face. What we face, and, and they said then it's not real corruption. My goodness, it only takes five thousand. That's what we're see. really cheap. They said, <laughs> it, it, we're, you know, they said, uh, they said, so that must not be the Congress's concern. They must be concerned with the appearance of corruption. Now, and they said that's not enough of a concern for us to erode the right of billionaires to give money to super PACs. From Colorado's perspective, that's that's crazy because there is a real issue there with corruption. But second, what they missed is the place is corrupt, but it's a corruption of inaction, not a corruption of action. It's a corruption of somebody saying to themselves, I'm not going to have that committee hearing. I'm not going to admit that climate change is real. I'm not going to give that floor speech because if I do, some billionaire might drop $30 million into my race the next time that I'm up, and I don't want to lose my seat. And so that's why we find ourselves in a place where people can't act in a rational way. And the terms of the debate now, to go back to the extreme stuff, the terms of the debate are set by the idiosyncratic views of these billionaires, which is far outside the mainstream of conventional American political thought. It is far outside the mainstream of conventional Republican thought. And just yesterday, or the day before, um, you saw... Uh, Steve Bannon, looking for a primary opponent for John Barrasso, senator from Wyoming. If John Barrasso is not conservative enough, Republican enough, I don't know how you find somebody who is unless they're so right-wing that they're actually where Bernie is. I mean, that they've gone all the way around the circle. Well, in some ways, that's the case. I mean, uh, Steve Bannon is not uh, your traditional conservative i mean he, you know he has an entirely no. different view that uh, is is rooted in opposition to globalism uh, trade treaties yes. uh, you know it's all about american sovereignty uh and uh so it, it it's not it's not consistent with uh conservatism as we know it right nor is donald trump i mean we've we've gone through you and i've shared some of this over the years but We've gone through almost a decade of terribly self-destructive budget fights that gained no ground in terms of fiscal responsibility, but 
created government shutdowns and other kinds of things. I don't want to bore you with the details. But at the end of that, at the end of all of that misery, who does the Republican Party nominate and whom, whom do we elect? A candidate who has promised to cut taxes mass, more massively than anybody else, increase defense spending, n- not reform Medicare or Medicaid, and there's nothing conservative about that, those positions, and there's nothing that's consistent with re- traditional republicanism, which is why I think this is so dangerous. You know, I mean, Steve Bannon is not an Edmund Burke type of conservative. He's something completely different. Well, he wants to... He wants to uh, tear down the the establishment. Uh, I mean, very. He's very. Uh, he's very explicit about that. Wants to tear down the Republican establishment, the Democratic establishment. I mean, he he has some pretty expansive ambition. Yeah. Uh, we should take a short break, and I'll be right back with Senator Michael Bennett. We will get back to uh, to where we are today. I want to go. Uh, I want to return <clears throat> to your history uh, a little bit because um, you kind of wandered around a bit in your life, trying to figure out what it, what you wanted to be and what you wanted to do. Uh, and uh, you went to law school um, and quickly concluded that you didn't want to be a lawyer. You moved to Colorado, but mostly because you fell in love with a woman who moved to Colorado, uh, and you kind of fell into business, though you had no experience in business. Explain all of that. Well, I um, I loved law school, but I didn't like being a lawyer, and um, and my wife is a public interest environmental lawyer, and she loved being a lawyer, and she wanted to work on Western public lands issues. And so we moved to Denver so she could take her job. And I went to work for a guy out there named Phil Anschutz, who was a billionaire who hired me for $65,000 a year. That's what he, that's what he paid me uh, because I didn't have experience. I think he liked the fact that I was coming from a Democratic administration. He thought that was interesting. And I fell into the world of buying distressed Companies. So these were co- what the companies we were looking for were companies that were very well run in general, but very poorly capitalized for some reason. So the last deal I did with my colleagues there for Phil was buying Regal Cinemas, United Artists, and Edwards Theaters, and we created the largest motion picture exhibition company in the world. And I learned so much in that job. I mean, I, I, um, I, I just like going to law school changes the way you read the newspaper. Understanding how to read a balance sheet and an income statement really does change the way you read the newspaper and think about things. I don't think there are newspapers, uh, <laughs> like physical newspapers, around much anymore. But anyway, go anyway, for it. Yes. Well, actually, that's another. That's an interesting point. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, um, then my friend John Hickenlooper de- decided he. he we were sort of friendly acquaintances. We're now friends. And he decided he was going to run for mayor of Denver. And He's governor now, but we should point out that at the time you met him, he was a entrepreneur right. who, who started taverns and yeah, restaurants. Yeah, a bar owner and a restaurant owner. Kind of helped build, uh, uh, what is it called, Lodo? Lodo, lower downtown. A whole Denver. neighborhood in Denver. Yeah, he yeah. had the good sense to occupy his brew pub, which I think was the first brew pub between Chicago and Los Angeles, 
three block, two blocks away, I guess, from what would become the ballpark that the Rockies play in. Yes. So anyway, he decided to run for mayor, and he said, will you help? And so I was part of his kitchen cabinet, and we and surprisingly, he won. Uh, and he beat eight or nine other people that were kind of inside politics. It was a, it was actually a, re- a nationally uh, noted campaign yeah. because he came so far out of the blue, yeah, and it's was such a quirky candidate, very creative. But in ads. a sense, uh, his coming from outside of politics was what made him attractive. I mean, he didn't present himself as a politician. And he ran on the issues that really mattered to the city then. We had a budget. We were going to have a deficit, which was something that I actually uncovered in the course of the campaign, and we were able to use effectively in the campaign. And we were we were in a recession. And part of the point he made was um, the city raising parking rates in the middle of a recession was probably not a great way of getting people to come downtown to buy stuff. And anyway, I thought it was significant that he ran on the issues that mattered. And so we had a conversation. This was in the early 2000s? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, he, and we had, he tells the story differently, and I tell the story differently, I guess. But I became his chief of staff, and I, and I made the decision to, to leave the Anschutz guys and why did you? Because you obviously were doing well. Uh, I loved it, uh, and uh, I'd learned a lot, but I had always felt like public service was something that I wanted to do and never thought working for the city and county of Denver was something that I would want to do. But it seemed interesting, and we were able to attract a really high-quality team of people, and it was absolutely fascinating. They're- you know, I want to ask you about this because, my I mean, I covered – local government. I was a city hall bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune, and I ended up uh, sort of specializing when I became a consultant in urban politics and urban races around the country. And I absolutely believe that uh, local governance, local politics is the most vital uh, form of government that we have. Well, and I I would say, in addition to that, that um, if we simply it's much easier said than done. But if we simply extended the standard we apply to conduct of local officials and local county commissioners and local city council members, it's not to say they're all perfect, to the yeah, Congress. We're sitting in Chicago here, so. Right, exactly. And that's a big – Denver is very different from Chicago. Right. So Denver has been blessed to Chicago's have, different, a little different than Chicago was. We still has yeah. – we still have a little bit but, of that. But, but we have had – you know, we had – Federico Pena, and then Wellington Webb, John Hickenlooper, Michael Hancock. These guys were all rock stars, and there were four of them in a row that took Denver from being a fairly modest place to being one of the leading places in America today. And if you ever care to learn about how your water gets to your house or the, you know, how a park system is devised or transportation works, the place you can learn that is city government. And I found it totally fascinating. And the stuff that you deal with in city government is the stuff that most uh, impacts on the quality of life Absolutely. that people – and sometimes life and death. And in that case, in the city, the first thing that I was responsible for – was helping John find a way to balance our budget. And that meant we had to cut 10% of it. And we were able to do it, and nobody in the city really noticed it, and it, and, and we were able to come out of the recession. It's very hard to get people to do that in D.C. Anyway, I was there for two years, and then um, the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools left. 
And, uh, and you said, based on your life story, you said, I have no experience in this. Why don't I do And it's true. I, I mean, and the big criticism of me and the school board was that I had no experience in K-12 education. And you never that, actually attended a public school. No, that's true, too. And I was, I wouldn't say ambivalent about it, but I had my own questions about whether or not that was going to be a good fit. What I did know was that we are failing children in America, uh, especially in our urban school districts, especially children living in poverty. And the Denver Public Schools was failing our kids. And, um, and as it turned out, in the event, just like in life, what it's about is not one person. It's about assembling a team of people that are really exceptional and who all bring something different to the table and, and have different competencies. And um, that will be the best job I will ever have in my life. Why? Um, because the the fight is so worth winning. The children are being so mis um, are being so um, poorly treated, and um, and you can make progress. I mean, Denver Public Schools has now gone from being basically flat on its back. My predecessor had done a few really good things, but the guy that was right before me. But the district was basically flat on its back, dead last in student achievement of any district in, in the state uh, of any size, and losing enrollment year after year after year, cutting its budgets. Ten years later, we graduated 70% more kids and sent them to college than we did in 2005. We have a 120% increase in the graduation rate of our Latino students. We are the leading what, what district. You, the last seven why? years, the leading district in, in academic What, what, what did you do? Then? Well, it wasn't one thing. It was a lot of things that added up to moving from a culture where there was just um, a, a sense inside and outside this public institution also that failure was to be expected to a culture that said we got the same expectations for our kids in Denver that we have for any other kids living in Colorado, and we're going to move heaven and earth to do that. And if that means that we have to close and consolidate schools, we'll do that. If it means that we have to merge our pension system into the state system so that we can lift the burden that we're paying, we'll do that, even though it's uncomfortable. If it means we have to change our academic practices, we're going to do that. And when you go out to Denver now and you meet a principal out there in one of our schools, and I can't take credit for a lot of this. The guys that came after me did a lot of it. Um, they'll tell you that their job is not to keep the system the same. They'll tell you their job is to change the system. That is a transformation from where we were before. It's such an important Maybe the most important mission, you know. Uh, I, I so one of one of the memories that's that sticks with me of my years of working with Barack Obama was actually when he was a state senator uh, in Illinois, and he represented a district uh, that covered a, a, a fair swath of the South Side, and uh, he used to talk about going to kindergarten and first grade classes and and seeing these kids and they would and he'd say what do you want to be and the kids would say I want to be a doctor I want to be a lawyer I want to be you know president of the United States and then uh, going to uh seventh and eighth grade classrooms and he said and, and that spark was gone mm. and it wasn't because of the kids it was because of it has ever, no, you know it has nothing to do with yeah. the kids I mean I I had a pastor in Denver 
who said who had a kid one he had one kid in in a in a in a high poverty school it was his kid and another kid in a in an affluent school and and he said to me kindergarten is not the same thing in those two places you know in one place they're doing math maybe it was the third grade in one place they're doing math the other place they have crayons on the table what are you going to do about it michael and that's happening all over america so what i i want to say though is that Every single school I closed has now been reopened, and the Denver Public Schools is now the fastest-growing urban school district in America. But we we had to make hard choices in order to put it in a position for our kids to succeed. And How much opposition did you have to those uh, choices? It was, it was it was the most intense. It made it made it made the wor- the best school closing meeting I ever had with parents was a thousand times worse than the worst Tea Party town hall meeting I've ever had. A thousand times worse. Yeah. And, because, and, justifiably, because people are saying, wait a minute, you're telling me because the district hasn't done its job that my expectations and my kids' expectations for where they're going to elementary school or middle school are being disrupted when you failed to make the decisions. Totally reasonable position for them to have. I don't know if this was true there, uh, but you know there were uh, when uh, Rahm Emanuel became mayor of Chicago, he closed uh, I think f- fifty schools. Yeah. I'm not sure the exact number, but it was tremendously uh, it was tremendously controversial. It, it, you know there were fiscal reasons that it had to be done, probably educational reasons. But um, there was a sense in these communities that had already been stripped of the, their local businesses that had gone away, uh, you know, the bank, the grocery store, uh, you know, that this, this school was the last sort of standing institution yeah. in these communities. And now that was being taken away, and, too. And, and that's a completely reasonable position for people to have. So I think what you have to do is be able to deliver and you have to be able to implement well and get results so that people say, you know what, there's no reason we can't have excellent schools in our neighborhood. And there's no reason we shouldn't um, have a city that has the same expectations for our kids that we have for our kids. And that's, you know, that's where we need to get in America. We're a long way from being there. And I can't think myself of anything that's more at war with who we are as Americans and the idea that if you're born poor in the United States, your chances of getting a college degree are nine in a hundred. Right. You know? And we've, we've, we, we we're bad and we've slid uh, in a world in which education is, has become more and more important. When, when George Bush, the son, became president, this is a, not a partisan observation, a temporal observation. When the son became president, we led the world in the production of college graduates. When Barack Obama became president, we were 16th in the world. Mm-hmm. So, what are we going to be? Do we want to be 32nd in the world, Although, or do we want to? Or do we want to? There's also the issue of uh, whether college is necessarily uh, the only avenue, but but certainly you need advanced tra- even to to work in what we used to call blue collar jobs. Right. You need technical training to run computers and 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 all kinds of so, auto- automation. So on the first point, not always, but but sometimes people make that observation about college when they're talking about someone else's kids, right. not their kids. So right. I think it's important that that's understood. But you're absolutely right. Not everybody needs to go to college, but people do need the skills to be able to advance in this economy. Yes. And one of the reasons I think we're having a challenge there is that uh, we're not equipping people with those skills. If we could, pl- I think that 
we have a huge opportunity here in retooling our community college system so that they become yeah. more of an apprenticeship model than they are today. That's something we tried to start when, when yeah. I was in the White same, House. Yeah. Same with our K-12 stuff as well. And building off successful apprenticeship programs that labor unions have and businesses have, uh, I think there's a lot of progress we could make. And it would give, give you the benefit of being able to pay people at a time in their life when they need to make some money and also equip them with the skills they need to be able to earn a living wage. You mentioned uh, unions, and I wanted to ask you about this. You know, I'm a, I, I think teachers are the most important and undervalued asset in our society. You know, I, every single one of us can point to a teacher who sparked something in us that was formative uh, and stuck with us for the rest of our lives. Um, so I think teachers are undervalued. Uh, I'm also a supporter of unions. Uh, but sometimes union, the t- you, you clashed, I'm sure, with uh, teachers' unions. How do you reconcile those things that I just said? Well, first of all, if it really is a holy war, then you should treat it like a holy war. If it's not really a holy war, you don't need to demonize the people that you're working with. And I had my share of disagreements with the teachers' union leadership, and they had their share of disagreements with me. But that didn't mean that we couldn't work together for the benefit of the the kids. And we found a way to work together for the benefit of the kids. And they had to they had to change a lot, and the district had to change a lot. And in the end, I think a fair observer would say, we did the right thing for the kids in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think the idea, you know, that that a Betsy DeVos has, for example, that somehow none of this can ever be done without, unless you destroy the union, is not correct. And I think just from a practical point of view, they're going to be there forever. So what we have to do is reconceptualize the work of teaching together, what it means to be a principal together, and what that labor management relationship looks like together. And I think we need a far more progressive approach than we have historically had, and one that puts the children at the center of the discussion. Because if the children are not at the center of the discussion, I think that neither the union nor the district is doing the job that we really are meant to do. And um, but the but you I, know in a sense it, that one of the rationales for unions it's not a rationale one of the 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 reasons for being of unions is to protect its members um, hence tenure um, you know zealous uh, protection of positions and so on that is where there seems to be yeah but I but I think that there's also what's gotten lost in that shuffle in some parts is for example mm-hmm. the fact that we're we're um, dramatically underpaying new teachers in this country. And the in in general, it's true across the country that the benefits have accrued to the, the people that have been uh, around longer and they're, they're not benefiting the newer people. 
that's a challenge that has to be confronted. And I think everybody needs to be paid more. But having said everything that we just said, I, I gave you all those statistics on student achievement. It's also true that when I left the Denver Public Schools, or when I got there, there were about 4,250 teachers. We paid the sixth worst salary of any school district in the Denver metro area. Today, there are more than 6,000 teachers, and we pay the best salary of any any school district in America. And that's a result of the collaboration that we've had. I don't trivialize any of it. It's hard. It's challenging. And there may be things on which people simply can't come to an agreement, like, for instance, school choice and charter schools. But we've managed to have that ecosystem work fairly well in, our, in my city. That was one of the reasons why I first came to know you. I think I was sitting in the transition office here in Chicago when President-elect Obama was interviewing potential cabinet members, and you came to interview for the job of Secretary of Education, and uh, by all accounts were tremendously impressive. Uh, And then another superintendent, another school uh, superintendent named Arnie Duncan, who was a friend of the president's, came. And uh, I remember the president coming out and saying to me, you know, I can't penalize him for being my friend. He he made such a passionate and compelling presentation. And he ended up choosing Arnie as secretary of education. Uh, were you crestfallen when that happened? Did you – how much – did you expect to get that job, and how much did you want well, it? Well, I was shocked when, when I got called and asked to interview. And I always thought Arnie would have the job because Arnie in the, was in Chicago, and he'd done, he'd done a really good job. He and I are good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, Great guy. And, uh, but I, I want to tell two quick stories about that because I never talk about I never, ever talk about it because I feel like that's the President Obama's business, not my business. But since you raised I it. I outed it, yeah. Since you raised it. Um, one, um, we finished the conversation in, in the office that you were remembering, and it was just me and the president. And uh, he got up at the end and he said, I really am interested in what I heard. Let's let the proctology begin, which meant that <laughs> I had to fill out all the paperwork and have the FBI stuff and all of that. But the second thing uh, I wanted to tell you was, I so I was in my office in, in Denver, and... Um, I was having an argument with a member of the board who wanted to have an emergency meeting to decide what would happen if I did get the job. And I said, I can't, we can't do that because I don't want to look presumptuous and I'm probably not going to get it anyway, so don't worry about it. And during the course of this fight, I missed a call from President Obama. I, it was on my cell phone and it was a Chicago number and it, and it said, this is Barack, call me back. And, I, and, I, and, and then my other phone rang and it was a reporter calling to ask me how I felt about Arnie being selected. Uh, 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 the school, uh, sorry, education secretary. And I said, great choice. He'll do a great job. And then I called President Obama back, and I left a message. And I said, y- y- there is no need for you to call me back. It was very kind of you to call me back. Um, and Arnie's a great choice, and if there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. And five minutes later, this guy is getting ready to run the government of the United States. Five minutes later, my phone rang, and it was Barack Obama again. And he wanted to explain to me why he had picked Arne Duncan and mm-hmm. why he didn't pick me. And I thought, what an unbelievable act of decency that was. I mean, mm-hmm. Most people in this business would never it call also to was give a, it, bad but news But it also reflected anybody. the respect that he 
No, I think he treated. I think he generally treated. People yeah, he that did. Way. He does. He did, and he does. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Senator Michael Bennett. So, as life works, uh, what looked like a defeat, uh, or at least a, a, a disappointment. Uh, opened up another opportunity because Ken Salazar, a senator from Colorado, uh, was uh, selected to be the Secretary of the Interior. And that opened up a Senate seat in your state. You had a Democratic governor at the time and many aspirants. I would venture to say that you were probably about 10th on, uh, or 11th on a list of 10 of likely yeah. appointees, and you got appointed to the Senate. How did that happen? Well, first of all, while I was disappointed about not getting that mm-hmm. job, uh, I was extremely happy with the job that I had. I love being superintendent. As I said earlier, I really do think it'll be the best job I, I will ever have. But then Ken, as you mentioned, Salazar got appointed to the Senate, and Bill Ritter, who is our governor, interviewed a bunch of people, and he offered me the job. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think you'd need to ask him. I know I know one thing had happened, which is that he had seen me in a town hall setting in one of our high schools just being beaten to death over some education reforms that we were trying to put in place. And, I, and he witnessed it, and I think he remembered it and thought that that might be a useful skill. I will say that my, my, my only pearl of wisdom in any of this, having been through those two processes now, is that the way you need to think about this kind of stuff, and I've been telling my daughter who's applying to college that she should think about it this way as well. That does not mean she's listening to me, but... Is that she, there, she is a Axe Files listener. I'm sure she is. There are a million tumblers in the lock... There are a million tumblers in the lock, and every one of them has to fall in the right way for you to end up getting an appointment to the Senate or becoming education secretary or getting into college. And some of those you can control, and it's important to distinguish which ones you have control over, but which ones you have no control over, and worry about the ones you can control and see what happens with the other ones. That That's my takeaway. Governor Ritter said uh, that... Uh, the quality that stood out in you was that you had a sense of humility. And I, I I say that not as a question, because if you actually have a sense of humility, you probably don't want to address that point. But uh, I think it's a, it's a great commentary that that was the thing that struck him the most, because humility is not necessarily the most prominent quality in our public figures today, even though one would think that being in politics today is a humbling experience on a daily basis. But um, uh, let's talk about uh, your uh, your work in the Senate and where we are uh, right now. We, we started this discussion earlier about sort of the pressures on our institutions and the dysfunctionality uh, that we see. Talk to me about the president himself and He's obviously a symptom of something which we talked about before. Um, what is the what do these first nine months tell you uh, about the impact that he's well? It's going not to much have. of a lesson in humility, for one thing. <laughs> I mean, th- this is not somebody who knows what he doesn't know, and he doesn't know a lot of stuff. Um, I was reading some stuff the other day and saw that uh, Jefferson, in his inaugural address, talked about. 
um, how hard this job was going to be for him because it was such a hard job and he wasn't skilled or knowledgeable enough to do the job. That's Thomas Jefferson. Ben Franklin, speaking of humility, said that when he was writing up his list of virtues, the one that he said he could never meet was humility because if he were humble, he'd be so proud of being humble that he he wouldn't (laughs) be humble. So Donald Trump obviously has the opposite view, and I I think he is – he is, is, he, is, is, it, is it lack of humility or is it a manifestation of something else? Uh, 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 lack of confidence that... Yeah, ex- I don't know. But I think that it risks getting the country into serious trouble and it risks degrading our institutions in a way that um, we have got to... We, 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 need to, we need to respond. I mean, we... we as, as I said earlier, I'm not. I'm, in a way, I'm not surprised he got elected. I feel like the country was very careless. We were all. I share my part in that, in electing a reality TV star to the hardest job on the planet. And right now, I think what's at stake. I felt my first term was really about trying to demonstrate that you could make bipartisan accomplishments even when the place seemed like it was couldn't work together. Um, and there are a list of those, including immigration reform, which you never got through the House. But um, now I feel like we're in a fight for first principles. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for the resurre- resurrection of our institutions so that we can actually make principled decisions in a, in a democratic republic, which is where we live, so we can demonstrate that self-government still works and is the greatest hope for humanity. And we need to preserve other institutions like the press, which he's attacking every single day, to obscure the truth because he cannot withstand the scrutiny of the leading journalists in America. You, uh, you, you, you quote the founders often. This was something that was fundamental on which they all agreed, which is, the, the, and which is why it's enshrined in the First Amendment. Absolutely fundamental. And they wrote about it. They talked about it. Jefferson talked about how irritated he was with the press. He felt like they had treated him very poorly. You know, he wouldn't have used the language Donald Trump uses, but he thought they had treated him unjustly and, uh, and poorly. But his view was that what would overcome that was an informed electorate and reason. Those were two things that he thought were important, which is another reason why Citizens United, I think, is such a devastating, has had such a devastating impact on the fabric of our democracy. it's propagated a lot of uh, falsehoods, mm-hmm. and it's created an unfairness about whose speech is more important. And it's really, it really has created a problem at its core. But the president, the president's assault day after day after day on the on the media is, I think, very destabilizing because if we abandon edited content and curated content in favor of just gibberish that's on the Internet, we are not going to be able to govern ourselves. It's not to say you should agree with every reporter that writes anything. In fact, I think you should read the paper if you do read a paper or mm-hmm. listen to the television. I, I said that tongue-in-cheek yeah. because I, you know, obviously, I, you but I just one. know everybody under... I mean, I still love having a newspaper in my hands. Yeah. I don't know anybody under 50 no, who right. reads them. I've actually given up reading them on, on, in pa- on paper. But, but, I, but, I, but let me say it this way. I'm not sure I would have been chosen to be a superintendent or stayed in that job if there hadn't been two daily papers in Denver keeping each other honest. We've now lost one, the Rocky Mountain News. Mm-hmm. And the Denver Post is now moving to Adams County so it can co-locate itself 
with its printing press. We can't let that slip away because we need it to help modulate our political system. We should say, parenthetically, you mentioned earlier that your brother James is a journalist, more than just a journalist, one of America's really fine journalists. He was the editor of The Atlantic. Now he's the editorial page editor of The New York Times. The failing New York Times. Yes. He's a propagator of fake news. <laughs> the, uh, what, what did you think? The other, and I, look, the wh- thing is, I, don't, I, I read the New York Times, but I also read the Wall Street Journal. I mean, mm-hmm. and, I think and people should do you that. You should. And, and if, you, if you find yourself listening to MSNBC for a month, maybe you should listen to Fox for a week. I think you probably should turn off the cable. But, but, if, if you're but, listening, Mr. President, y- y- he's y- talking to you. Yeah, and by the way, how does this guy have all this time to watch the cable all day long? Yeah, um, I don't. I really don't understand it. <laughs> you mentioned immigration uh, and your role in trying to forge a bipartisan uh, immigration reform bill. We now have a clock ticking on on DACA, the the uh, the now uh, canceled or or. Uh, I guess it will be canceled in six months, executive order of President Obama's that essentially uh, protects these 800,000 kids who were brought here to this country as children, not, uh, not of their own volition, and who are essentially completely assimilated in our country. Uh, our, the, the president said uh, that he had worked out an agreement in principle with uh, Nancy Pelosi, the, the House Democratic leader, and your leader, Chuck Schumer. What is the state of play on that, and how confident are you that uh, something positive will happen relative to these uh, to a solution? We have to find a solution here. We we have to do it. These children have no other place to go but um, the United States, and uh, for all intents and purposes, they're American citizens, and that's why the public supports this so resoundingly. It's why Republican voters support it. And Do you hear that when you travel around Colorado? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, what I heard when I traveled around Colorado uh, during the immigration bill was, we need this fixed. And I heard that not just from dreamers, but from Republican farmers and ranchers who were at risk at losing their family businesses because we couldn't figure out the issue with labor. And that's why I negotiated the, provi- the ag provisions in that bill with Marco Rubio. You saw the, the so-called principles that the, pre- the White House no. put out. Uh, what, is, what, what was your reaction I think, to in, as usual, what he's trying to do is drive a wedge and—, and 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 beat down the most vulnerable people in our society. And uh, I think that's not a recipe for getting something done in a bipartisan way. I, I hope we can. I am very proud that my colleague, Cory Gardner, who's a Republican from Colorado, is a co-sponsor of the DREAM Act, as am I, and I think we should vote on a clean DREAM Act. Give and, people the opportunity to stand up and say whether they're actually going to do something useful for people. And do you believe that Senator McConnell, the majority leader, will allow that? I don't think that he will. I think that he should, but I, I think he will try to avoid it. So what happens at the end of these six you know, months? I, we're going to have to find a way one way or another to protect these kids. We're going to have Do you have to that do, sense that, 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 that notwithstanding what you just said about McConnell, that yeah, there's a recognition on the, that side of the aisle? Definitely there is. There mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about one other issue that is... There are religious organizations all over this country. You know, some are liberal, some are conservative, that know that this is completely contrary to who we are. Sorry. 
No, gun control and the issue of guns. You have a C-plus rating from the NRA, which on today's political curve is like, a for a Democrat, an extraordinary achievement to get a C-plus. I, I say that as a, one who prized my C-plus to low B average when I was going through school. But <laughs> what... Uh, Tell me, this is an issue that you that really that you hear a lot about yeah. in your state. It's been a very um, divisive uh, issue in your state. Talk to me about where there is common ground potentially on this issue. Well, I'll, you, I'll say that very briefly and then tell you what I'm worried about. I think there's common ground on closing the gun show loophole and 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 having a better system of background checks. I think there's common ground on that. I think there's common ground on banning the d- device that this guy used to turn his semi-automatic weapon. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about but the weapons? What worry- why, why, why should there be... Um, I mean, I, I, I'm asking you as someone who who is steeped in this issue, why should people be able to buy sort of weapons of war? And, you know, these the weapons that he was using even without the... I think this or- guy... Look, this... He, let, let me back up from that and say this. Here's what worries me. And I talk to my children about this and I ask them, does this feel different to you? Because it feels different to me. 58 Americans have just been murdered. F- over 500 Americans were wounded by a guy shooting a gun from the 32nd floor of a hotel across the street. And but, and I said this on the floor the other day, but nobody. I had meetings the next week, the, the Monday after it happened, and it was never raised. It never came up. That would never have happened after Newtown. I don't know when, when it was that we began to think of this as an expectation. There's a guy on the radio the other day who said, this is the price of freedom. That Bill O'Reilly said that. That is so far outside of where we should be that I think we should be having a debate about this. And we should see where we land. The Second Amendment is a real thing. It's part of our Constitution. I've been sitting here defending the Constitution, and I'll defend that as part of that Constitution. But we should have a discussion about it and a debate. And and none of these amendments is is without limit, you know. And that's true for right. the First Amendment, right. you which you mentioned you earlier. You can't scream so fire in a crowded theater. I think a useful place for us to start would be on the background checks, because by definition, that's a place where even you, though that wouldn't have apparently but, stopped but this you know, guy. You hear that after every one of these things, they say mm-hmm. you wouldn't have stopped this and you wouldn't have stopped that. But in Colorado, we have strengthened our background checks. That's a Western state. Okay, and we've got stronger background checks than they have in 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 Washington, and um, those background checks have stopped two percent of the people that have wanted to buy guns from buying guns. And in that two percent of people are murderers, rapists, domestic abusers. It's pretty hard to argue that Colorado is not safer having those people not have guns. And that's why I'd like to see that on the national level. And maybe it wouldn't have stopped this guy, and maybe it wouldn't have stopped the guy in uh, uh, Newtown, but maybe it'll, maybe it'll stop somebody. What's your level of confidence that we can bridge, not just that divide, but that we can turn the page on what is, because it seems like the country has sorted itself in ways and we've redistricted ourselves in ways that, all, that, that the political incentives are misaligned. It's not going to happen unless we choose to make it happen. And it is not going to happen unless the American people decide that it is their patriotic duty 
and a responsibility that they owe the next generation of Americans to fix our political system. And if we don't make that, and, and if we leave it to the politicians, it will never be fixed. And and that is going to require us to say that a politics that, that's defined by how loud somebody screams at somebody else or, 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 or how hard you fight against somebody else who's also an American or uh, is defined by a complete lack of result is unacceptable to us. And the mechanics of that go to things like fixing dis- districts so they're not gerrymandered in ways that make it impossible for people to work on the other side, although I think part of that also is about leadership and people stepping up and being willing to explain to their voters that sometimes there's going to be disagreement, sometimes there's going to be compromise. Uh, it's going to require us to uh, uh, get Citizens United money out of our politics, or at least diminish it. It's going to require us to uh, find some way of supporting outstanding journalism again in this country. That's a, a real threat right now. I've been That's watching by the fact that you many cities like Denver have lost their. Yeah, and we don't know. I mean, I've I've had this conversation with my brother among other people. You know, we we have yet to figure out either journalism or politics has yet to figure out in this era of social media how to make ourselves relevant and how to make um uh and how to use social media in a way that can actually lead us to govern ourselves better rather than just retreat to our respective corners. Let me just uh, ask you this uh, before, we, before we go. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, the, the founders. Um, they, as you point out, were engaged in this extraordinary experiment, and they knew it. They understood that it was fragile. As you point out, Franklin said, we have a republic if you can keep it. Um, is it possible that we are so successful that we've come to take for granted that which they knew was fragile and required constant vigilance? I think that is very possible. And when you travel in those kinds of countries that I was talking about earlier that have less of a commitment to the rule of law and less enduring institutions than we have, um, uh, I think you can see why people might lose the perspective because we take for granted here things that many people in the rest of the world simply don't have the benefit of. And it seems to me the least we can do is try to secure this republic for another generation of Americans. And all I'm saying is it's not going to happen by accident. I am optimistic, fundamentally optimistic, that it will endure this presidency uh, because because by definition – and they designed it this way also. I mean because – because it's rooted in the American people's right to vote and right to speak and right to think – and not in some king, that's what creates durability. And I think all we need to do is make it work better. Uh, and in order to do that, we're going to we're going to need to have more people vote. We're going to need to educate ourselves about the issues, and we're going to need a politics that's more responsive to, frankly, our future than it is to left versus right or certainly to our past. And leaders who govern that way, you being one of them. So I I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and uh, look forward to many more conversations. Thanks, David. 
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.